Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, Mickey here. Welcome to Wikipedia. And this week on the podcast, I speak to Dr. Brendan Egan about exogenous ketones and exercise through the lifespan. Two unrelated but equally interesting topics. Firstly, on exogenous ketones, we talk about how they may be used in different exercise contexts, where the science is at and lacking, and the potential application in the longer distance events. And Brendan gives a really good rundown of our current knowledge base and where there are gaps. And also we have a good discussion around the sort of practical application as a clinician, because Brendan is a sports nutritionist also, versus what you read in the literature, which I always find super helpful and interesting as a practitioner myself. We then shift gears to discussing exercise in general and why the strength, muscle function and muscle health are important concepts as we age. We discuss the potential for a catabolic crisis and how this can take decades worth of muscle off somebody's frame in a heartbeat. We talk about sarcopenia and how we might best define it through the lens of increasing opportunities to avoid it rather than from a diagnosis or deficit model. And we also talk about what counts in terms of strength work as we age, i.e. what about gardening? How about Pilates? I think you're going to get a lot from this conversation. It was super informative from my perspective and I know that you guys love a bit of a geek out but in a way that allows you to understand it. For those of you unfamiliar with Brendan, he is an Associate Professor of Sport and Exercise Physiology at the School of Health and Human Performance at Dublin City University in Ireland. Brendan received his, his BSc in Sport and Exercise Science from the University of Limerick an MSc in Sport and Exercise Nutrition from Loughborough and a PhD from Dublin City University. He also completed postdoctoral training at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. His interests are both in sports performance and exercise and aging. Now, Brendan doesn't really exist on the internet. You will find him if you go to ResearchGate, but I have included a link to his profile at DCU. Before we crack on into the podcast, just a reminder that the best way to support the podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast listening platform. This increases the visibility of the podcast out there in amongst literally thousands of other podcasts, so more people get the opportunity to learn from guests that I have on the show, like Brendan. All right, team, please enjoy this conversation that I have with Dr. Brendan Egan. Dr. Brendan Egan, thanks so much for taking the time this morning, your morning, to uh, yeah, no chat to pleasure. me about your work. Um, now, it was interesting because I've heard you for a number of years on numerous podcasts uh, discussing different topics and um, particularly, of course, uh, research in and around um, muscle health and function. And then, of course, more recently, some of your um, ketone work in the yep. athletic performance space. But, of course, you've been working in that for many years. So mm. can we start with a bit of your background and, and tell us a little bit about yourself and how you sort of have progressed across your years? 
Yeah, sure thing. Um, I was trained as a, as a sport and exercise scientist as, a, as an undergrad. And um, during that time, I became you know more interested in metabolism and, and physiology. And I was faced with the choice of how to get a job out of doing a sports science degree. So I decided to specialize with a master's in, in sports nutrition. But even by doing that, and you know, I've practiced as a sports nutritionist as a result for you know the best part of, of twenty years. But during that uh, master's, I really became interested in the research process, and um, it actually took me down a route where I initially thought I'd be looking at things around exercise intensity and and fueling. And the supervisor I had back in Dublin City University at that time was more interested in the molecular side of things. And you know, you kind of di you're dictated by what your supervisor is interested in uh, when you're doing your PhD. So I ended up working much more in the area molecular exercise science for yeah the best part of my you know phd four years postdoc for a couple of years and um you know that took me down a route where i began to ask the question of you know fine knowing all this molecular work but where are the practical applications of, of research and how to translate into the real world so um when i moved back to my first job my first lecturing job so to speak my first uh, independent role as a, as a principal investigator i was working closely with someone who was interested in aging and sarcopenia who was professor giuseppe de vito uh, based in, in university college dublin so it was really from that point that we began to work together he had a slant obviously on the exercise side i had a bit of a slant on the nutrition side and um, we were working together on a number of different projects there and um you know to my so that, that was kind of the aging and, and muscle health domain and that you know what i've been working on probably you know, for the best part of of 10 uh, years or more and it was probably later that I mean I, I was always as I said practicing as a sports nutritionist um, you know with teams especially team sport players because that was my my own sporting background um, but we were always obviously doing little bits and pieces here around performance nutrition research as well and at some point uh, ketones came on the map and uh, we were one of the first groups who was really looking at the question about you know basically the you know the metabolism of ketone bodies during exercise the rationale for why they may, might work as, as a supplement and when you begin to delve into that area you begin to see that ketones are really um, pleiotropic in terms of the effects they can have on the body whether it's a performance or from a health point of view and so that's kind of then been a major theme in my group for yeah the best part of five six years now. Yeah, I find it so interesting. Um, you mentioned that about ketones, uh, just in that, you know, because you do come across certain supplements, for example, where they tend to work on a number of different levels and, and people are like, how can that possibly do all of these different things, which are seemingly unrelated, but it, mm. is, it is because they're working on the sort of similar or same pathways, I suppose. Of course, yeah. Like I mean, we've done lots of you know work on lots of different supplements, not beetroot juice, uh, caffeine, caffeinated chewing gum, um, protein hydrolysates. You know, a variety of, of different things that, that we've worked on. And you know, the interesting thing about any supplement is that you know it, it, it's on the shelf and it's you know people are using it, and some are reporting benefits and some are not. And you know, when you drill down then into the mechanistic basis, that's always a, a good place to be in terms of trying to understand like why why would this work in theory um and what are the physiological um mechanisms that might be at play here and again like i mentioned a lot of those uh, supplements you can look at at the at the different aspects of physiology but it becomes amazing when you look at ketones it's just about how many different effects that they can have now as we'll probably talk about later, that doesn't necessarily translate into a performance benefit. But in terms of of what uh, ketone bodies can do, it, it is really amazing how many roles they have. And I guess we shouldn't be surprised. And again, maybe we'll talk about this later because, you know, the, the role of ketones in the body in terms of why they're evolutionarily conserved and why they're, they're um, 
generation is amplified uh, during periods of starvation or low carbohydrate. I mean, there's a reason why they're, they're there. And it's just, I guess, more recently, it's the fact that they're available as a supplement that has really spurred on the research in the, in the last number of years. Yeah, well, why don't we just actually start there? Because I think that's a really good place maybe okay. for you to describe um, potentially some of the some of the benefits of all the, the roles of ketones. And then I know that you've written a paper that looks in and around the ketogenic diet and how that might differ to yeah. actually taking exogenous ketones. So that would be quite good. if you're Yeah, okay. okay. So let, we'll go back to basics and just start with, you know, what are the ketone bodies themselves? So yeah. usually when we're talking about ketone bodies, it's uh, acetoacetate, beta-hydroxybutyrate and, and acetone. And these are uh, molecules that are produced, they're, they're, fa- they're lipid-derived or fat-derived molecules and uh, produced within the liver. And the um, we're always producing a small amount of, of ketones, ketogenesis, as, as the process is, is called. Um, but this the, the rate of ketogenesis is amplified under different conditions. The, the most obvious um, uh, condition is in the period of starvation, so the absence of nutrient input. And the reason I bring that up is that the um, uh, thinking is really, and, and this goes back to the 60s when it was first demonstrated, is that when there is a, an absence or a, a reduction in, in glucose availability, um, there's a, a, you might say, an energy crisis within the brain in that the brain is heavily reliant on, on glucose as, as a fuel and, and uh, fats don't cross the blood-brain barrier as, as, a, as a metabolic substrate. So the body has developed, and as I said, is evolutionarily conserved across many species, developed a, a pathway in which um, uh, fatty acids are converted to ketones with, within the liver, and they're then able to be transported to the brain to be used as an alternative fuel. Now, it's not just the brain. I mean, the ketone bodies are used in, in multiple different tissues, and that's part of the reason why there's quite a bit of interest in their use in, in heart failure, um, you know, as, as a substrate for the, the failing heart, but also then in the area of, of um, uh, muscle uh, in terms of, of performance. So, um, yeah, going back to that uh, point about the, the the studies in the 60s, we're essentially showing that when people were starved for prolonged periods of time, the contribution of ketone bodies to brain metabolism became, uh, you know, more than half of, of the of the substrate. So there's still a, an amount of glucose around because we have processes such as gluconeogenesis. But uh, ketogenesis is then, as I said, being amplified during this and it's, it's um, now providing a substrate um, for, for the brain as well. So that kind of leads us to um, other situations where ketogenesis is amplified. And that's, again, one obvious example is the ketogenic diet. So a scenario where we have a restraint on, on carbohydrate um, intake leads to uh, equivalent, well, let's say not totally equivalent, but similar metabolic conditions as, as starvation in that there's, an, there's a lower um, than usual supply of, of glucose or of glucose availability within the body. And that therefore will amplify the rates of ketogenesis. Um, so the provision of a, of a, obviously of a very high fat diet, which is what the ketogenic diet is, uh, and low carbohydrate in, in that case will cause this amplification of, of ketogenesis. And then ketone bodies is obviously what's been measured in the blood when people are saying they're in ketosis. So, um, the so th- that they're the kind of basic uh, concepts I think around ketogenesis, ketone bodies, state of ketosis, and as I said, that do- all the examples we gave, starvation, ketogenic diet, they are dietary uh, changes that occur over um, days, weeks, months, and where ketone supplements or exogenous ketone supplements come in is that uh, again, this is going back to the seventies. There was quite a bit of interest in the idea of ketone uh, supplements. But it's only in the last, say, yeah, 10 to 15 years where there's really been um, an emergence of many different types of exogenous ketone supplements. So we refer to them as ketone salts, uh, ketone esters is another 
Uh, medium chain triglycerides can also be ketogenic. Um, there's a compound called butane diol, which is similar to an alcohol, which is also ketogenic. So there's a number of these different um, compounds now that when they're ingested acutely, so you know, in a small bolus of anything from say 10 to, to 50 grams, that these can really produce a rapid, all transient, you know, over a number of hours, but a rapid increase in ketone body concentrations. And that again is what we call, it is a state of ketosis. In this case, it's called acute nutritional ketosis by, by most people. So that's, a, a, you know, a starting point in terms of the, um, the, the concepts around the diet, uh, you know, diet induced ketosis or this acute nutritional ketosis from, from different supplements. Yeah, interesting because I've I've chatted to um, a few people now about um, ketones, Dom, D'Agostino, yeah, yeah, um, and um, and on the sort of brain perspective or brain health um, space, Stephen Cunane has yeah, I've chatted about exogenous ketones and and stuff like that. So, with regards to I guess your work, Brendan, what is it primarily that you're sort of interested in on that um, performance space? Yeah, so we got into this space um, initially looking at, at performance, and um, I can mention some of the ideas around health, I suppose, as well, that we've later become interested in. But in the initial instance, it was that it was around about 2015 or 16, and there was a lot of talk at that time about, you know, this is now not in the scientific literature because there had been uh, no papers at this point, but there was a lot of chatter in the performance nutrition space, um, particularly around whether uh, British Cycling had been using this, you know, this new novel compound and, you know, whether Tour de France cyclists were using this miracle um, supplement and, and so on, and um, again, to knowing people within the fee, within the you know applied practice, these you know stories and interest was, was coming back to us. And the as as it's subsequently been shown in terms of just patent filing and so on, like these this exogenous uh, ketone supplement in the form of a keto monoester that has been around um, you know since around 2012 or, or 13. Um, so it was only in 2016 where the first published paper came out and at that time we had been we had been working uh, over the course of say 2015-16 on a review um, looking at ketone body metabolism you know we, at, as I said at the time the supplements the supplement that was on the market at that time was it was a ketone salt and we had done an initial preliminary piece of work on just the metabolic response to ingesting this ketone salt and whether it affected um, substrate utilization during exercise. Very simple, uh, basic study, but but well done in, in uh, well-trained individuals. And then in the summer 2016, this paper comes out uh, by the group at Oxford that seemingly shows a 2% performance improvement in a 30-minute in a time trial in, in elite cyclists. And that kind of exploded interest in in the field and in, in in like I said in, in 2016. So at that point, uh, it became you know it was essentially there was an, at least one news story every month that was you know in one of either the cycling uh, magazines or you know, it could be even in things like the Guardian you know in their Tour de France uh, uh, preview would maybe mention are these ketone supplements being used. So it seemed at that time to be a very hot area you know and there were um, as I said few studies coming out. So. I think over the course of 2017, 18, 19, 20, you know, a lot more people began, independent research groups began to get into this space. And we did a couple of, uh, of studies around um, using, you know, acute ingestion of this keto monoester um, for running performance. So we looked at intermittent running performance. We looked at uh, 10K time trial. Um, there were, a, a, there was a group in uh, in Belgium who was also Peter Hespel's group who've been doing a lot of work, um, again, with elite cyclists under lots of different designs, very nicely done work. So over the course of, you know, three or four years after that initial study, there was a lot of nice work done. And the interesting thing is effectively it showed, you know, all of these other studies showed that there was no performance benefit. And 
that's kind of been um it's been a bit of a conundrum because um the uh the first study that came out was nicely performed it was in a good journal um nice looking data and subsequent studies just uh, we in our review I, I can't remember off the top of my head how many were ketone ester uh, studies but it's got to be close to 10 or 12 at this stage that effectively showed no performance benefit and again you know with research as you well know there's lots of differences between study design considerations you know the congestion of, of different fuels um the type of performance test that that's being used the type of athletes that are being used so you know you can you can see little differences between studies where uh, you know that might explain when there is or isn't a performance difference but as we wrote in that recent review that you mentioned um you know the overall weight of the evidence at the moment would say that there's uh you know one that there is a second study that's kind of showing the performance benefit that, that came out late last year but essentially on the on the athletic performance you know the idea that you acutely ingest these exogenous ketone supplements you measure performance outcome the vast 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 majority show no performance benefit yet Again, according to all anecdote and again, newspaper stories and so on, there still seems to be fairly heavy use of, of these exogenous ketone supplements in in the peloton in particular in, in, in professional cycling. So it's hard to reconcile um, the uh, data that's in the scientific literature with, with, the, um, with the data that's in the, uh, or the, sorry, the anecdotes coming from professional sport. Yeah, interesting. And in your experience, Brendan, like, do you work with people who, despite the fact that you, of of some of your findings, like, do you still practice nutrition with clients and and see anyone that you consult with or or in your circle who might use them and say that they benefit? Well, that's a great question because, and it's probably a broader question than just for for ketone supplements themselves. And uh, it's something that I've always um, grappled with as someone who works in applied practice, but also who works in academia. So I I would say at at the moment, so to answer you directly, I don't know anyone at the moment who's using uh, exogenous ketone supplements uh, and reporting a performance benefit. But I know other practitioners who are working in elite sports who are using exogenous ketone supplements and the athletes do like them. So there's, you know, there's something there. And again, we we may get into this, but there are other mechanisms by which these exogenous ketone supplements might be having effects, whether it's on recovery. Um, there's a recent paper also showing that uh, there's a transient rise in, in, EP, um, in EPO after um, uh, the ingestion of exogenous ketone supplements in recovery. So, you know, there, there are other things going on um, that, that could be potentially having an effect. But to go back to your question about, you know, the, the difference between, say, practice and, and research, I think it's a really interesting question because you, so if, as a practitioner, if you had a, an individual and you were to try a strategy, it could be a change in diet or it could be a, a change in, in, say, dietary supplements around performance. And that person reports a benefit uh, or they report feeling better or they suggest, well, you know, that was my best performance. As a practitioner, you're kind of faced with the challenge, well, um, you know, the evidence base might not be there. Um, <laughs> yeah. we, we tried it out because we'd heard it might be a benefit or some other athlete was using it. Um, but now the athlete I'm working with thinks that this is really enhancing the performance. Yeah. You know, so that's the anecdotal side. And then, you know, maybe the, you might say the placebo effect or so on. And so in some ways you kind of say, well, that's that's fair enough. Now, ketone supplements, you could maybe argue against because they're so expensive. You, you know, you, you might want to <laughs> be sure that uh, they're having an effect before you're spending a lot of money. Yeah. But the the other, I think, way of, of approaching it as an objective way, this is particularly, think, I, I think, true with um, with uh, 
sports that like endurance sports in particular where um you have uh, very objective measures of performance and those athletes are really dialed in in terms of the training that they're doing the types of workouts they're doing maybe the uh, courses that they run or the track sessions that they do and they kind of they know whether they're having a performance benefit or not it's a little bit more difficult in team sports because of so many variables that they affect performance in, in a team sport but in uh, in those types of endurance sports, and maybe you could argue for certain supplements in in the area of of, uh, of strength training as well, um, if you were to measure an individual over, say, several occasions, and using say your supplement, maybe you do a placebo uh, trial as well, but it's an N of one, but they see that they actually do have a performance benefit with you know supplement X. Um, and even if the research is not supportive of that, then you kind of have to wonder, well, how do you approach this? Uh, and my, my view is that, you know, again, assuming that there's no chance to, or a very limited chance that the supplement is doing harm and it's not overly expensive, that it's a, that it's a waste of money, then I do think there's a, you know, you got to have that little bit of wiggle room as a practitioner to be able to say, well, this is, you know, these are my own data. You know, this is me in the field doing the best I can, hopefully not fooling myself uh, and being able to test out on an end of one basis whether this practice or this or this dietary supplement works and i think that is um an approach that i know that you know many people do take and it's probably not talked about much because it's hard to write about this or it's hard to find that type of thing in the scientific literature but there is a value in that certainly on an individual basis with athletes and you know working as, as a practitioner yeah, that's what I do, to be honest, because yeah. uh, I've had the uh, prove it salts in the past, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and I've got some Delta, is it Delta Force G Delta or something G, yeah, or other. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Delta G, the the actual ester, and uh, and I, I swear that I take a prove it salt sachet, and then I have some of my best sort of interval based mm. performance runs. Yeah, you know, and and be it whether it it's and I mean I mean it might well be placebo um, every single time that I do it. Uh, but if I am running faster, then I'm obviously getting some sort of fitness benefit from that. And it yeah. is, in fact, improving my performance, I suppose. Yeah. So like the, the improvement in particular are interesting because they have caffeinated versions and uncaffeinated versions. And that allows yes. for a direct comparison. And I think is it, it's definitely one, if not a second study, has also come out where they're comparing the uh, caffeinated version to an uncaffeinated version. And I think one of the the, uh, the most recent study, the conclusion was more or less that the effect was being derived from the caffeine and the caffeinated case. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like a, a know, really expensive <laughs> cup of coffee. <laughs> well, maybe, but you know that's that's true of many uh, pre workouts, I suppose, as well. But yeah. um, at the same time, though, it, like I do think, and it's it's what we wrote in our in our review as well. You know, when you look at the types of studies that have been done to date, um, many of them are. Um, of a higher intensity and of short, of relatively short duration, and that is uh, a little bit problematic because if you look at um, the kind of physiological rationale as to why or when uh, ketone bodies would be useful as an alternative substrate, I would probably argue that it is in longer duration, you know, moderate intensity type efforts. And so I think this, you know, one of the things that we um, are very much interested in is whether there might be something in, say, ultra endurance or, you know, prolonged uh, running. And one of the pieces of work, which I, I can't say too much about because it's uh, it's not published yet, but there's been an awful lot of work that has compared uh, carbohydrate to carbohydrate plus ketones and very little that has compared uh, ketones alone. And we've now done that um, study and there's quite interesting findings there. There's definitely a difference between what happens when you're consuming carbohydrate and ketones versus ketones alone. Um, 
versus carbohydrate, obviously alone as well. And so hopefully we'll get that uh, research out within the next uh, the next few months. But it's um, it may op- you know may open up questions in terms of whether ketones alone might be valuable as opposed to trying to combine them with carbohydrate. Yeah, oh, interesting because of course mm. the ketogenic diet really sort of lends itself. Um, or I see it a lot in the ultra endurance type space, yeah. to, and particularly a lot of ultra runners who run like beyond, you know, fifty kilometers. It's mm. up to like hundred k milers, that kind of thing. Yeah, and, and like like that. I mean, the, the ketogenic diet has been controversial in the sense that um, you know there are a number of studies that show no benefit or adverse effects when it comes to certain performance tests. But again, I would make the point most of them. And I won't say they don't make sense and why why would you test it on high intensity performance? But you know, because the answer you know, that does answer a question. Is it valuable for high intensity performance? No. Um, but if you if you want to look at where it might be valuable, certainly that longer duration, um, moderate intensity type efforts where it is possible to use both, you know, in the case of ketogenic diet you know, higher circulating fat concentrations, um, free fatty acid concentrations, and also um, obviously circulating ketone bodies, they would, that their intensities of exercise where they would be more likely to be utilized, you know, in preference to glucose uh, or carbohydrates. So as soon as that intensity ramps up, it's very hard to see a scenario where the body would still rely on, on fat or ketone bodies. It will almost always switch to um to reliance on carbohydrate and we did a study albeit it was it was a short-term study it was only seven days of a ketogenic diet but even though there was a shift in terms of the um intensity of which you know the body transitioned from predominantly fat to predominantly carbohydrate that shifted to the right as we said you know it occurred at a higher intensity of exercise it still did occur there still did come a point where you know reliance on on carbohydrate for energy provision was was the major source of, of fuel there so um you know you can't really get over that intensity question in, in my opinion yeah, for sure. Well, um, your study that you mentioned, that sounds super interesting. So it'll be um, really yeah, good to see. Keep an eye out for that. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah it uh, published. Um, Brendan, can we go back to your comment about the um, utilization of ketones and the potential shift in EPO levels? Like, Can you just mm. describe a little bit about what that study found? Yeah, so that was a paper that came out of the University of Bath, uh, Javier Gonzalez and James Betts, um, and nice little study. It's um, it's looking at the provision of um, of ketone bodies in the post exercise period, and um, it was a rapid communication. I I, I would I probably guess that there's more to come out of that data set, um, but I think this finding on the uh, EPO concentration was was quite interesting. So they showed this uh, transient increase in in EPO in the post exercise period, and it's interesting because obviously, as you know, when when there's a you know people are doing altitude training, that's one of the you know strategies that they're hoping to achieve is to cause an increase in in uh, red blood cell production through this um, um, effect through via EPO, and everyone knows about the benefits um, of EPO as, as a as a as a drug, of course, as well. Um, so my read on it is that the uh, the data look robust uh, in the sense of you know the response to exercise, the full change that that's present there. And it seems consistent. So I think it's a I think it's a real finding. And the I suppose the question becomes, you know, how much of an effect could this have uh, in terms of mimicking say altitude training or having an effect on, on red blood cell homeostasis? And when I look at the uh, the concentrations um, that they get up to in, in the post exercise period with the consumption of of the exogenous ketones. They look to me to be around about what will be seen uh, during altitude training. Um, the early part of altitude training in particular. And I think the um, the point there is that, so it could be practically relevant, the change that's occurring. And 
I suppose the obvious difference, of course, is that it's transient in the case of, of the post-exercise period, whereas with altitude training, it's going to be the sustained elevation in, in EPO for a period of time. Um, so what would we say? Well, you know, there could be a benefit over several months, let's say, of using ketones in the in the post-exercise period. Maybe that would be enough. Um, but at the same time, I do wonder about, you know, if you're really talking about it, moving the needle on, on red blood cell homeostasis, does it have to be this, you know, sustained elevation and an EP over, you know, may, may, basically the, the course of the day for for several days and weeks, as opposed to maybe this, this transient thing that's going to occur in the post-exercise period with, with consuming ketones during recovery. Um, but I, I do think that the ketones during recovery is an area that is under-researched at the moment. You know, there's one study that looked at the uh, effects on, on um, overreaching. Um, there's a couple of studies that have looked at, at glycogen replenishment and one other study that's looked at recovery of from uh, damaging exercise. Um, and again, the results are very mixed, but at the same time, that's that's a handful of studies. And the example I always give to people, you know, when they say they dismiss their ketone bodies as, as, a, as a supplement out of hand, I'm like, well, there was a lot of studies done on different types of carbohydrates during exercise. And there was a lot of studies done on different combinations of protein and carbohydrate after exercise. And so you can't really dismiss things after a handful of studies, uh, especially when there's, as I said, a fairly decent uh, physiological rationale for why they might be benefit in certain types of exercise performance, why there might be a benefit under certain conditions in recovery. So I think the door is still very much open. I don't. I don't think the uh, the area, even though we we wrote our review and you know there's a lot of let's say null findings within within that review, I don't think that closes the door on things. I think there's lots of different uh, areas where we can still look at these uh, these supplements and what they might do. Yeah, interesting. And would you have expected like this may be a dumb question actually, but if someone is on a ketogenic diet and they're producing ketones, will that change the EPO, um, the amount of EPO? that is seen or do we not know that or no so that's that's a good question i i think this comes back to i i realize we uh, we probably didn't address it earlier and uh, speaking specifically about the difference between the ketogenic diet and exogenous ketone supplements and so one of the most stark differences between the two is that unless someone is in a you know doing a really strict uh ketogenic diet um their levels of concentrations of, of BHB, uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is the main uh, measurement we use, that would probably not really get up above one. Now, again, people in so-called deep ketosis, people who are really adhering to a ketogenic diet and doing a lot of exercise, they may see values reaching up, you know, two, three millimolar at uh, different times. But in the context of what happens with the acute exogenous um, ketone supplement ingestion, especially the ketone ester, I should say, it's it's less so um, with the ketone salts. Ketone salts will get people up to around one millimolar. But with the uh, ingestion of the um, um, ketone esters, again, dose dependent, obviously, you're seeing values in the two, three, four, five millimolar range. And so um, that was what was observed in that uh, study we're talking about in relation to, to EPO. So I don't think it's the equivalent um, that you'd likely to see on, on the ketogenic diet. Um, yeah. And again, maybe there's something as well to do with the post-exercise period um, that's different to, say, just, you know, uh, daily intake of, of a ketogenic diet so um i think to be continued i suppose would, would be the question there yeah yeah the nice there. nice that's a nice roundup of sort of the where everything is at on that ketogenic research at this point in time um with obviously more to come with those studies that you mentioned yeah yeah um brendan can we chat about um your work in muscle health and muscle function of course. So you mentioned that that you've you know you've been looking at this um, for like a number of years now, and obviously strength training, muscle health, and function, all really important concepts as we age. 
and actually this is just a sort of off the cuff question, but like how many people do you know that say to you, oh, I really need to get into strength training and do nothing about it? Well, that, that it's, it is, it's amazing because so I, I was blown away back in the day when I started working on this topic because I, I did a I did a talk and it was like you say off the cuff it was very short notice I got asked to do a talk um, for it was TEDx you know these locally arranged oh, yes. uh, TED uh, talks and it was at UCD where I was working at the time and um, they they said they wanted a really short title and they wanted I think I can't remember what the other brief was but something about you know actionable information or something you know changing uh, you know the message or something about health so i came up with this title muscle matters very short title and I, I did this talk and it was basically about you know the importance of muscle throughout the life course and i mean at, at the time this was this is nothing now but at the time it got like five hundred thousand views within the first year which was a you know, back in 2000 maybe 13 14 or thereabouts and the amount of people who were sharing it talking to me about it saying you know i never knew this about muscle i never knew this about strength training i never knew we lost muscle as we age and i was and I, I in that I, I show a couple of pictures in there about you know the cross-sectional area of the of the quadricep and and uh, and uh, hamstrings and showing the differences with age and so on and like, people are just blown away by this stuff and and you know being an exercise scientist and working in the area for a number of years i you know i was kind of like how do people not know this information and it was it was a real lesson you know it's kind of uh hubris as a young uh, researcher thinking that everyone knows about what's going on in the in, in what you're working on but i just realized that you know very quickly that People in the general public know next to nothing about strength training um, of a certain age. You know, I think the generation of, say, I, I'm 40 now, my, my age and younger, I think people are very familiar with the idea of going to a gym, lifting, you know, it's everywhere on things like Instagram and so on. So people are well aware of it. But when I think of my parents' generation and, you know, the over 65s that we work with at the, at the moment, you know, they'll understand the idea of, of strength training, but they have absolutely no concept of how to do it or why it might be beneficial or, or anything like that. So... The honest answer to go back to your question, how many people do I know, let's say of the over 50s, let's just use as, as, a, as a number, you know, it's a very, very small number of people who actually do strength training in a way that would be appropriate for, for their age and to bring about, you know, long term benefits. And that does mirror actually with some of the um, survey data that's done where they look at, you know, what are the number of people reaching the so-called you know, two sessions of strength promoting exercise per week, which again does not define anything about duration, does not define the type of exercise or whatever. But that's often used in these surveys in terms of are people doing, are they meeting the guidelines for strength training? And more often than not, the values are 10% or less. And it varies again from country to country and age range and so on. But that's a one in 10 on average uh, person, you know, who's doing. That's across the life course. That's not just in the older adults uh, who is doing enough strength training to meet those guidelines. So it's a fascinating statistic when you think about then, as we're probably going to talk about the importance of muscle uh, as we age, whether we're talking about muscle size, we're talking about muscle function. It's a, you know, it's a staggering statistic that only one in 10 people are doing two sessions a week of strength training. It's really no, amazing. No. And it's amazing the number of people who think gardening is strength training. Or... Yeah, this this is a question I get a lot, um, which uh, you know, I, I, again, and it varies. I've I've spoken in public forums, and I've spoken in in uh, you know to say medical doctors, um, conferences around nursing, these types of things. Work we work presently a lot with um, doing uh, workshops with with physiotherapists who are um, graduates who are moving into the area of maybe working with with older adults. And the question that comes back repeatedly are things like, is, you know, is gardening strength training, is um, uh, yoga strength training, is 
Pilates strength training. And, you know, on one hand, okay, things like gardening and, and household chores, they're certainly physical activity and they're better than doing nothing, no doubt about it. They're actually, they're important. Those types of um, activities are an important component of, of overall health. Um, but things like Pilates and strength training, they, uh, sorry, Pilates and, and yoga, they have, an, they have actually a really important function from a balance point of view. Um, and they may contribute to some form of strengthening because there's a lot of isometric contractions. But in terms of things like improving muscle size, if, if that was a goal, um, or improving some of the other functional um, components um, like climbing stairs, getting up and down out of a chair and so on, they're probably not the type of training that we would recommend. They're just not specific enough and they don't involve the dynamic types of of contractions that are important when we talk about traditional strength training. Yeah. So, Brendan, can we talk then about why it is important as we age? Yeah, well, it's... Um, can yeah, you give me few... like the... Like a two-minute <laughs> free there are a few different ways of, of thinking about it. So, you know, um, going back a, a number of years when I actually, I forgot to say at the start that when I was initially doing my research uh, as a postdoc, I was interested in type 2 diabetes. And in that domain, um, we talk about muscle being a reservoir for glucose disposal. And the idea is that, you know, I wouldn't say the more muscle, the better in that case. But when you're talking about trying to control blood sugar levels, you're saying that, well, if you exercise, especially whole body exercise, and you make the muscle more insulin sensitive, then that's a better you know there's a bigger reservoir and a you know a place to send that glucose that's being consumed um within the diet carbohydrate in the diet again you probably know that it's now the guidelines have shifted in terms of consuming lower carbohydrates as the first um line of, of treatment in, in type 2 diabetes but you know certainly exercise is going to help from a cardiovascular point of view as well you know in in, in type 2 diabetes as well so there was that kind of idea that it was a, a glucose sink uh so to speak um and then you know there was obviously the role that you know muscle plays in local motion so you know if your if your muscles are dysfunctional then it's going to affect the way that you move and that's probably where we're now moving towards in terms of talking about its importance across the life course is that as we see declines in in you know there are inevitable declines in in muscle size and muscle function as we age and i guess an awful lot of what we're talking about with um, strength training in older adults is trying to mitigate that decline so you know there is a there's a life course perspective that's often shown you've probably seen the graph where you know your muscle strength or, or function or size it rises throughout our teens and into our 20s and probably peaks somewhere in uh 30s late 30s to, to early 40s after which there is a steady decline um and there may be a steeper decline for certain individuals um and that may be related to lifestyle factors or you know sudden illnesses and, and so on but the, the ideal scenario is that if we um have strength training and like i said two times a week is, is the current guidelines that that mitigates the rate of decline and we stay functional let's call it functionally independent for long, physically independent for for longer and obviously that's associated with a better quality of life so that that's kind of the the broad uh, perspective and then when we when we looked at at the at what does the research tell us? Uh, usually, what we're talking about there is epidemiological research, where um, things like uh, hand grip strength, walking speed, actual muscle mass are measured in in large populations, and then these populations are tracked over a number of years. And the model that's typically done is that you divide up the the population based on you know strength and uh, say tertiles or quintiles. Similarly, whether it's walking speed or or um, or, or muscle size, and you know, it's amazing how consistent the results tend to be. You know, the strongest one third of the population or one fifth of the population or the people who walk uh, the quickest habitually um, or those who have the highest uh, degree of, of muscle mass, those all tend to have the lowest mortality risk. And 
the obviously as you move down and almost always in a you know in a fairly clear dose response you know the weaker you get or the less muscle you have or the poorer your balance the um, mortality rates or, or the incidence of different diseases are much higher um, in those uh, in those cohorts so um, that I think is again indicating that there is a value in both function and size when it comes to a kind of our long-term health and, and our obviously then quality of life later in life as well. Yeah, sure. And I, I'm thinking, like, I know that you sort of work predominantly or we're talking predominantly about the older age group. But of course, I always go back to thinking about children today, you know, and how different their lives are compared to, say, when we were growing up or when our parents were growing up. Will that have implications for their ability to build or use muscle later in life? Brendan, do we know anything about that? I mean, that that's a brilliant question. And, um, you know, if someone said to me, you know, you can plow all your research money into into something, it probably wouldn't be with the older adults I'd be working. It would be in the younger generations and trying to, you know, for want of a better word, bulletproof their, you know, their lifestyle in terms of both their habits around physical activity and, and strength training and endurance training, the whole, the whole package they really and as, you know, the whole other can of worms to open is just around dietary intakes as well and in kids and teenagers. But to answer your question specifically, so that life course model, that I mentioned where it talks about, you know, um, muscle size and function uh, increasing, uh, uh, you know, in, in younger age, and then it reaches a peak. I think the literature isn't there. So you're, to ask you your question, you know, I don't think the literature is there, but, you know, intuitively it makes sense that, you know, what someone engages with as, as a child or as a teen or certainly into their 20s is going to affect where that peak or what that peak is, you know, in terms of their their functional ability or, or their, or say, for example, muscle size. And once you've reached that peak, then, as I said, the question is, what is the rate of decline after that? And some people refer to the idea of, you know, increasing your, your ceiling. And in other words, you know, the, the higher that peak is, the better able to be able to sustain a, a certain level of muscle size or function above a threshold, which is sometimes called the disability threshold, is this idea that there is a point at which your function becomes so um, uh, impaired that you become, you know, independent or, or physically independent. And that's, as I said, known as a disability threshold. So to wrap this all up, I'd say that, yeah, the things that are done, uh, the habits, again, you have to remember, these are habits that are often being formed as well that influence, you know, where that peak will occur. And these habits then are taken into later life. So establishing really good habits in, in kids and teens around exercise, and around diet, making sure that peak is, you know, as, you know, as high, let's say, as, as it can be, that's going to definitely have, uh, in my opinion, uh, positive impacts throughout later life. So there is a huge body of work that I think needs to be done in terms of trying to get that message. You know, it's, it's all well and good talking to older adults and people in their middle age about improving their health and the practices now. But, you know, you can, you know, improve things for that age group by getting things, you know, in line later or earlier in life. And I think that is where some, some, some work really needs to be done. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, now, I've heard you say, Brendan, that you're not a fan of the term sarcopenia because it doesn't necessarily, it's almost a diagnosis which might sort yeah, of yeah, yeah. shift someone's thinking in and around their function, I suppose, or or their health. Can you first like define sarcopenia and then just yeah. talk to me about that? Yeah, so I yeah, be careful about how I how I phrase it. I don't like the term. So, so the word is fine; it makes sense. You know, it comes yeah, from yeah. Uh, Greek. It means it means poverty of flesh. And uh, but but that's an important point because uh, it originally was defining the um, this age related loss of muscle mass, and the func the the focus was 
at that time, I would say this is uh, the late 80s that it was first defined, was on this idea that we lose muscle mass. And that's not because the researchers at, at that time were um, not interested in muscle function. It just became the defining characteristic in those early definitions was around muscle size. Uh, but everyone knows that there's a relationship between muscle size and muscle function. So, you know, the two kind of go hand in glove. And so more recently, there have been, an, again, there are different definitions from different um, organizations, but um, initially, a lot of the discussion was around, like I said, muscle mass and function. Now, the most recent definition from the European Working Group is more that it's a it's a disorder of, of muscle um, uh, function. Um, and size is a kind of secondary measurement that's used to define sarcopenia. Um, so when, when I say, when you, you, you say that I don't like the term, I actually, it's it's the way the term is used actually is, is what I find troubling because there's two elements to it. One is just being pedantic. People say sarcopenia when they really mean just a muscle wasting in general. Um, and they're, they're, they're obviously not the same thing. Um, so that's just me being pedantic. But the um, the reason I, I don't like it as, as a concept sometimes is that it's not like obviously there are defined criteria to diagnose someone as sarcopenic, but there's a whole period of time in the lead up to when they eventually cross those thresholds. And by the way, I'll define those thresholds in, in, in a second. Um, but there's a whole period of decline up to the point that someone becomes defined as sarcopenic, which, um, you know, which is an opportunity for people to intervene. And I, I just sometimes uh, worry that the the medical system will, you know, approach this problem in a way that, well, we're not going to do anything until the person is objectively defined as sarcopenic. And at that point, we're going to intervene. And the point is, again, like I was saying earlier about maybe things in, you know, the, what happens with kids translate into later life. If you can intervene earlier in someone's life before they're sarcopenic, you know, the chances of, you know, improving quality of life um, are certainly, I think, improved. So that's that's kind of why the, the concepts, um, I think, could be, uh, you know, maybe treated just a little bit differently in terms of, of how they're used. Um, so just on the on the on the, the thresholds and what's used. So the the model that's used at the moment, um, again based on the European Working Group's uh, recommendations, is to um, first of all there has to be kind of a clinical suspicion that there is sarcopenia, and that that will trigger then an assessment uh, pathway. And initially, it's it's um, things like grip grip strength, walking speed, chair rise test um, that are used. So. The, and they're obviously measures of, of muscle function. And then again, there are specific thresholds that I don't know off the top of my head, but there are specific thresholds where if you're below that, that's, that indicates probable uh, sarcopenia, at which point the requirement, if you're going to define someone as overtly sarcopenic, is to uh, measure their muscle mass by uh, some objective means. Um, so these are usually DEXA, CT, CT scan, MRI. And if the person is again below certain thresholds on, on any of those different devices, they're defined as, as sarcopenic. And then there's another battery of tests that can be performed. Um, again, physical tests now in this case, timed up and go test, um, uh, walk, six minute walking test. There's a couple of others that are in there. And again, if they're below a threshold there, they're considered severe sarcopenia. So you have kind of like clinical suspicion, you've got probable sarcopenia, you've got sarcopenia and severe sarcopenia. And the, the point that I would make, and this is, we have this um, discussion all the time with, with physiotherapists who are working in, in practice, is that they will say, well, you know, we don't necessarily have access to the types of devices that can, that can measure muscle mass. So we can't define sarcopenia and therefore it won't trigger a care pathway. Again, this is maybe specific to Ireland uh, compared to, to, to other countries. 
And that kind of goes back to my point about the use of the term and the way people think about it. You know, if someone is demonstrating, you know, if there's a clinical suspicion, someone's over the age of 65, they're showing impaired muscle performance. You know, in my mind, thinking about it as a practice, as a practitioner, I don't necessarily need to know whether they've got low muscle mass or whether they're, you know, defined as sarcopenic to know that if their performance is, is lower than expected, we should be intervening with an appropriate exercise training-based intervention. And I suppose that, again, is no more than I was talking about uh, practice and performance nutrition. That is kind of trying to thread this needle of, you know, applied practice versus what the research and what the clinical definitions say. You know, it's um, it's always a tension that you have to try and, and try and get your head around, you know. Yeah, totally. And um, a couple of things you said just made me think. Um, one about when you were talking about this being a, a clinical definition, and it's almost like until you reach that point, nothing's going to happen or you're fine. I feel similarly actually about uh, blood glucose or yeah. how we measure A1C, that once you reach this point, well, you're pre-diabetes, but if you're like one point off that, oh no, your sweet mm. continue on. So, <laughs> you know, like no, no point, no worries about, you know, anything to do with your diet or lifestyle. Yeah, it's it's a tricky one because, you know, um, it, it, relatedly, it's things like, you know, whenever you see thresholds that are based on like the number five or the number zero, you're kind of like, this, <laughs> yeah. feels, this feels a bit arbitrary, uh, you know, whereas, you know, it's just there are always... Um, as 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 we've said a couple of times, both of us, you know, it's not just that all of a sudden overnight you wake you wake up and you're now sarcopenic or type two diabetic. You know, um, these are you know declines in metabolic or muscle health that are occurring over several years. And at, again, usually in all you know, in most cases, what we're talking about here are people. You know, the, a defining characteristic is probably low levels of physical inactivity. Sorry, low levels of physical activity, or or in maybe in the case of muscle health, a lack of strength training. Um, and it's, you know, at any point along that continuum from, let's call it the peak to, you know, wherever this person is measured on their, uh, in terms of decline, there can be an opportunity to intervene and the changes can be made and the sooner the better, you know. And, you know, there's a lot of messages that we can, one-liners we can say, you know, the sooner the better, more is better, you know, something is better than nothing. Like there's so many of these messages, but it's making them land and giving people the tools to be able to actually um, um, execute those types of training uh, programs is, is really where the challenge is. Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned um, 65 in there when you were discussing sort of one of the um, characteristics. Is it is that sort of an, an an age whereby we see it most often, or is there early sarcopenia? Like, how yeah, that that's a great question. So uh, part of that is is um, I think it's a legacy of the fact that older adults in many studies are defined as 65 and above. Um, and so you, uh, and again, middle age obviously is usually something like, you know, 40 to 65. So we kind of have these categories that we put buckets we put people in when we're talking about research studies and that idea of, of 65 and above has kind of been then um, used in some of the definitions that are around uh, uh, sarcopenia now on the other hand obviously as i said you know people are people's health could be declining for many years before that um so you know there's there's that element to it as well but the other point to make is that you know a 65 year old is different to a 75 year old who's different to an 85 year old and in the Western world, you know, life expectancy for most people is somewhere in in the eighties. You know, most of the the, the um, Western countries. So um, the uh, I, you know you often hear in nutrition we talk about context and and so on, and uh, that is true as well. I think in the context of of older adults, you know. What we might say to a 65-year-old might be quite different to how we treat an 85-year-old. The likelihood of being sarcopenic at 65 is a lot less than being um, sarcopenic at 85. 
there's people who are masters athletes at the age of 65 or people who can no longer even get out of their bed at the age of 65. So, you know, there are huge differences in in terms of what we're talking about when we say older adults, when we're talking about the age of them, when we're talking about their physical activity levels, their capability and so on. So, um, again, you know, when you're looking at, um, say, interventions, say, around exercise or diet in the research, it is really important to be looking at you know what what was the profile of these older adults um so in a lot of the studies that, that we've done i you know we haven't we've used pre-sarcopenic or um not sarcopenic at all uh, in, in some of our studies and they are very different interventions that might happen let's say in a frail individual who's in a nursing home because again most of our studies were involving people who were community dwelling so there's just an enormous um continuum in terms of of the different types of um, people that can be classed as older adults in, in any of these research studies. So the devil is in the detail in terms of, of interventions and, and what works. Yeah. Brendan, with regard to, I guess, just the overall health of the general population, you know, mm. like you hear statistics like in the United States, for example, 93% of people are metabolically unhealthy. Yeah. Does yeah. that have implications for our muscle health as we age and function? So, yeah, so the way those studies have been done is usually, again, epidemiological research um, where they look at uh, two or more comorbidities hand in hand and see what the influence of one is on the other. And if we use the example of type 2 diabetes, for example, it is well known that um, the presence of type 2 diabetes increases the likelihood of sarcopenia uh, in later life. And again, it's sometimes hard to untangle the, the question. You could look at it the other way and say, if someone is sarcopenic, the more likely to be type 2 diabetic. But again, just thinking about the progression uh, progression of, of disease, I think you're, you know, more likely to, to develop uh, diabetes first before developing uh, sarcopenia. And so I, I would, you know, guess that, yeah, the more metabolically unhealthy someone is, it's a lot of it, of course, is, is to do with diet, but physical in inactivity is a huge part of that as well. Um, and then if there's physical inactivity, I think that's the main driver of you know, poor muscle function in, in later life. So um, I think it's hard to disentangle um, multiple different comorbidities but you know most of the evidence are pointing in the direction that if you've got if you're metabolically unhealth, uh, unhealthy you're you know unlikely to be uh, in good muscle health so you know that's yeah no that's good um my um father very recently just this christmas he had covid and then right. he had cellulitis uh and then so he was sort of bedridden for like two weeks and when i saw him he's my he's 70 70 now and he's very fit he cleans and so he's always like and he still works and and full time and he works on his garden well not it's not a garden it's a jungle um but <laughs> um, so yeah he's quite physical but when i saw him he's quite uh, as a, a lean individual he had next to no like his whole upper body he was very thin Mm. And um, I also heard you say on a podcast, Brendan, listen, I heard you say this, uh, that, like, <laughs> across the course of like 10 days, someone can lose like a decade's worth of muscle. Is that, yeah. did I hear that correctly? Yeah, it's, um, it's coming from uh, that, that kind of uh, one liner as well is, is coming from a number of different studies that have looked at um, bed rest studies. And, you know, the bed rest studies are interesting because on, on one level, prolonged bed rest is often used as, as a model for uh, space flight, for example. Um, the short term bed rest studies, usually 10 to 14 days, they are good approximations of what happens when someone goes into hospital with, um, you know, a thing like influenza or a fall leading to a fracture um, or COVID, for example. So, 
uh, scenarios where someone is bedbound for you know a short period of time and uh, in the research studies that are done, there's some very nice summary data that came out just before Christmas in terms of the time course of change in, in different um, muscles uh, within the body and in terms of function. And what you see is that in the, those first 10 to 14 days is where the most amount of decline uh, occurs during a, during bed rest. And that, that idea of like a decade, um, you know, within 10 days, that is kind of, a, um, it's um, looking at the idea that when we um, look at declines in muscle mass um, over over time, you know, from that peak to the decline and the inevitability in in, old, in older adults, typically what's given as an average is about a one percent per year uh, decline that occurs over the age of sixty five. And so, when you have an average in these bed rest studies, one percent per day, you know, it becomes ten percent over ten days, and that effectively becomes that decade worth of of loss. So, uh, it is a useful, like it's it's um, you know, it's factually correct uh, first of all, I suppose, but it's actually a very powerful message um, to give to people now. The likes of your father, for example, and many, many others, you know, it, oftentimes it's very difficult to do anything about it as an individual. Um, so a lot of what, like I said, what we're doing with physiotherapists at the moment is just trying to get that message across that, you know, there are lots of different ways to do some form of muscle contraction uh, when someone is, is bed bound. Again, assuming that, you know, their their condition allows for it. Um, but like that, you know, the upper body wastes away very quickly. The lower body does as well. I, I, you shouldn't split it by body parts, um, but there are certain exercises that can be done. Um, and again, there's a, other research around things like neuromuscular electrical stimulation. You know, while someone is lying in the bed, and the fact that that can have a mitigating loss. So, you know, again, anything, <laughs> you know, anything is better than nothing when it comes to uh, to some of those interventions. But those ideas, you know, the the idea that uh, why does someone decline more rapidly than someone else, you know, over the course of twenty or thirty years? Um, there's this idea, which is the catabolic crisis model, which has been put forward, which is that there's multiple insults of this nature of short duration bed rest or uh, illness where someone's muscle mass declines more rapidly than it should over a short period of time. They ultimately never recover that uh, function or size that they lost over that short period of illness. And as a result, over time, you imagine that the stepwise reduction in muscle mass or function becomes greater than it otherwise would be if someone uh, didn't have these so-called uh, catabolic episodes. And I, I think that's a really nice way of thinking about, um, you know, first of all, how we should mitigate, anytime there's a chance that you're gonna have a period where um, there could be muscle uh, wasting, you know, try and mitigate it as best as possible. And during the period after the uh, uh, bout of illness or, or bed rest, try and engage in a program that rehabilitates someone back to the level that they were at. I think that's the type of way we should be thinking about these, um, uh, addressing the so-called catabolic crisis model. At the age 70 that my dad's at, I mean, I gave him a diner band and showed him how to use it with his upper body. Is it yeah. recoverable? Do we know? Well, that, that's a great question. Um, yeah. The again, if we were to say, you know, what changes can be made with exercise training interventions uh, in older adults, you would say that the gains that are made in various different studies of twelve to twenty-four lengths that are done, uh, twenty-four weeks that are done with with um, with strength training, the magnitude of those changes are equivalent to the magnitude of loss that might occur occur over ten to fourteen days. So in theory, I would say yes, we can recover. Um, but funny enough, there's actually an absence of studies where there is an enforced period of, of loss and then there is that recovery period. And they, again, would be really nice studies to see is that 
Um, and again, there, there are like, um, what would I say? There are a couple of review articles that propose, you know, there can be exercise and nutrition interventions while the person is bed bound. There can be exercise, nutrition and um, uh, interventions in the post, let's say, uh, bed rest period. And, you know, in theory, they will work, you know, mitigate the loss, accelerate the recovery. But we actually need uh, more studies to be able to really drill down into what is the dose of exercise, what is the right prescription from a nutrition point of view to um, both mitigate the loss and accelerate the recovery. So I would say in theory it can be done, but as you well know, <clears throat> exercise training interventions um, tend to be supervised three days a week. You know, it's very intensive to leaving someone to their own devices to try and do those types of programs. We know that initially they don't want to do, you know, they're not training anyway. And now we're asking them to begin to undertake a training program that's really intensive. So again, the difference between theory and practice there is is, uh, is kind of highlighted again. Yeah, for sure. And um, finally, Brendan, you mentioned the catabolic crisis, mm. so, uh, sorry, catabolic crisis happening over, you know, uh, several times in a person's, well, actually, this is my question, is that sort of, from the 40s, from when we know mm. we start to lose muscle, or is it um, across a short time span after 60? Yeah, well, like the, the, again, as an athlete, you would know that uh, if there's a period of injury, for example, you know, metabolic uh, fitness or aerobic fitness will decline very quickly. You know, it's the whole use it or lose it principle. Um, so we know that that can occur even in, in young individuals. People who have a, an injury, a fracture that gets uh, cast on an arm or a leg will see very rapid declines in, in muscle um, size and function as well. So it can happen at any time. Um, but what we do know is that, um, say, the um, rate of loss in a rest study is about three times or four times as high in older adults compared to younger adults. So it certainly is worse, let's say, the older we are. And, you know, how often it occurs, well, that is really down to the individual. You know, there are people who are getting, unfortunately, uh, sick or having an issue, an episode every year. Um, there are others who might have one once a decade. And again, that is obviously going to influence the trajectory of, of decline as, as we age. And like I say, uh, you know, if the intervention can be done in that post illness period, to try and bring them back up to where they were, that's obviously going to be the best prescription. But as we well know, that's not that's not often the case. Totally. Uh, do you know Rob Wolf, Paleo Solutions? Yeah, I know of him. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He once said that um, we need to basically build as much muscle as possible, then fight like the devil to to uh, <laughs> keep it on, basically for the rest of our yeah, lives, yeah, from now till to we forever. Yeah, that's a great way of thinking about it because, like I said, that's kind of the idea of, you know, trying to maximize that peak in, in yeah. early to the middle life. And then, uh, yeah, oh, I haven't heard him say that before, so that's a nice one. Yeah, it is. It's good. He says it much more eloquently. Yeah, no, I, 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 don't, I don't know him personally. I've been at a couple of conferences because he's been in that uh, sort of keto space as well. So, um, but, uh, you know, he's an enthusiastic guy. He really is. Um, Brendan, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate just your uh, oh, like wealth of information. Yeah. I could talk to you for uh, a whole lot more, but um, you've got a day to, <laughs> to do and I've got to go to bed. Um, you've got to go to bed, yeah. Yeah. Course. Now, apparently, like, you're not on socials. Is that right? Are you, not, are you on Twitter? That's right, yeah. I think I'm one of the few. Um, <gasps> Crazy. So, um, not yet. <laughs> you can find my research yes. you can email me uh that's yeah, yeah, traditional yeah. like that but uh no it's uh it's a funny thing i i just never got into it um you know when things are really kicking off and then then i was kind of a contrary i sort of resisted <laughs> going out when people told me i had to and uh 
Now I just look at uh, the amount of time that I'd have to commit if I have to take it kind of seriously and uh, I just don't have that time so I'm happy where I'm at. No, no, I appreciate that and we can put links to your research gate yeah, uh, in the show notes, that would be amazing. Yeah. Um, Brendan, thanks so much. My pleasure, Mickey, thank you. Alright team, hopefully you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed doing that interview and next week on the podcast I'm super stoked to bring to you a conversation with Hashimoto's expert Dr. Emily Kybird all about Hashimoto's, how to diagnose, how to treat and what lifestyle management techniques really work. So I think you're going to get a lot from that one, obviously. Until then though, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, over on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, or head to my website, mickeywillardin.com, where you can sign up to one of my meal plans or book a nutrition consultation or call with me there. All right, team, have a great week. Talk to you soon. <laughs>